everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. I am Sully, and uh, we actually are doing a special podcast for June because if you're not aware, in America, June is LGBTQ Pride Month because this is actually the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising in 1969, and that's why we have Pride in June, but we're going to talk about that in the context of anime today, and that's why I'm talking and no one else is, um, because I am the group's patron queen. So <laughs> today we actually have a special guest with us too, so I'm not the only one that's going to be talking. We actually have David Wald with us on the podcast for an interview. David is known for being the voice of Gajil Red Fox in Fairy Tale. He's also been in Akamaga Kill, and he's also Master Chief in Halo Legends. Um, but he's also been doing, he's also done ADR for, I think you started in 2007, didn't you? It was when you started working in anime. It was around, you know, the first show was uh, Shadow Skill. That was the first thing I was ever in. And I think I may have recorded that in like late 04 and it hit disc in early 05, maybe, maybe. So you've been around for at least a decade. Yeah, I've been a while. I've been, been coming up on 15, yeah. Were you, didn't you work for ADV too? So like you were yeah. there during during the big, uh, back when, like I've had to explain to people like even slightly younger than me what ADV is. Like they'll pull, right. pick up like an old DVD and they're like, what's this? And I'm like, oh God, I'm having more flashbacks. Um, <laughs> so uh, the reason that we have David on uh, for this episode is not necessarily to talk about his mini voice credits or his mini ADR credits. We're actually talking about something that he has been doing um, kind of as his own project, where he's been bringing a lot of LGBT anime over here to the States and having it dubbed and localized. So um, that's why we have you on. Thank you so yes. much for doing this. <laughs> well, that's it's my pleasure. I, I have pride all year long, Sully. I actually, um, I first heard about this because uh, another podcast that we're kind of friends with, The Awesome Cast, they interviewed Monica Rial, and I was listening to that, and then she like name-dropped you in this, and I was like, well, I've been oh. trying... I've been trying to do a podcast about pride in the anime community, and I can't get anyone to answer my email. So, okay, let me try this guy. <laughs> and I've actually been asking people who are not as famous. So uh, I, I shot for the stars this time. Well, <laughs> that's very uh, that's very generous of you to say. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm happy to talk about this stuff. It's uh, it's something I've been trying to get off the ground really for several years. I did a lot of beating on a lot of doors. Um, and finally, so did, you know, how did they get started? So like, where does this begin? Well, I'll tell you, um, uh, and you know, bear in mind as we begin this interview that, uh, brevity is not my gift. So you'll have no problem getting me to talk. Anyway, I'll try to give you the short version if there is one. So when I started working in anime and as I said, like it was around 04, 05, it was John Swayze. Uh, director John Swayze, an actor you probably know from a million things. He's been around forever. But he came and saw me. Uh, I was living in Houston at the time, and he came and saw a play that I was doing in Houston at Stages Repertory Theater. It was called Silence. It was a very cool play. And he had a very good friend of his who was in that play. He came to see it and saw me in it and asked me afterward if I'd ever thought about doing voice work. And I said only about every day of my life. It's what I always wanted to do. Um, and uh, he started bringing me in for like, you know, Soldier 47A kind of stuff in uh in as i said shadow skill was saying uh, was the was the title we were working on and um 
anyway, that was uh, uh, that's more preface than you needed. But the, the, uh, suffice to say that when I started working in anime, I didn't really know anime. I mean, when I was a kid, all I really had, the only anime I'd ever seen was uh, I'd seen uh, the old uh, Gachaman, which, of course, was in my childhood called Battle of the Planets. And then G-Force, you know, these were the oft maligned uh, dubs that happened of that show where they took out all the like adult material, you know, all the stuff where people died and horrible things happened. And they replaced it with a robot called Seven Zark Seven, who would just like flail his arms around and before the commercial breaks, tell you how you concerned you were supposed to be about the heroes, right? So uh, I didn't know a lot about anime. And when I started working in it, uh, you know, I didn't really know the idiom. I was just uh, doing, you know, being an actor, doing my actor thing, trying to embrace these roles and kind of learning as I went. So all of that was a really long way to say that I had no idea when I started working in this field how much queer representation there was already. Um, I mean, it's everywhere. It's always been everywhere. You've seen uh, gay, lesbian, trans characters all throughout anime. Now, you know, and given they're not, <laughs> they often, particularly in the elder days, they weren't, they weren't treated so great. You know, they weren't necessarily positive um, representations in a lot of cases, but in many they were. Uh, and the same is still true today. Um, so that was all a really long way of saying I had no idea how much uh, queer representation there was in anime. And it really wasn't until I played Bulat in a Kame Ga Kill where I realized that this was a thing. Uh, Bulat was the first character I had ever encountered really in anything I'd ever done or seen. You know, f film, television, theater. Well, theater's kind of a different animal, but... Um, I had never seen a character who was gay, and it was canon, and it was mentioned, and then it wasn't his only contribution to the narrative. I had never seen that before. Usually a gay character's job in any given narrative, particularly a Western narrative, is just to be the gay one. And that's really like, that's, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, the extent we got in narrative, particularly in something like animated stuff or... Um, or, uh, you know, television episodic stuff. Usually the gay character was there to just be the gay character somehow or another. Um, meanwhile, you had Bulat, who was, uh, you know, awesome, a teacher, a mentor, a brunette, very tall, awesome hair. Oh, and also, by the way, gay. And that just blew me away. And uh, I started looking around. I, you know, I, I was relaying my surprise to people to my my friends and peers at, you know how shocked i was that this character existed and they were like come on dude like anime has this stuff all over the place and so i started looking around and i started to see that there were shows a lot like akame got killed that had queer characters in them that were just characters and had other things to contribute um and of course i quickly found um, Yaoi and Yuri and Shonen I and Shoujo I, you know, I'd always been aware of this stuff in the abstract. Like, you know, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd heard reports and seen minimal examples of, of, you know, like the really hardcore stuff. So I thought when people were talking about Yaoi or Yuri, it was all like really hardcore, you know? 
like a hentai, gay version of hentai. Um, I had no idea how, how deep and how rich that medium got. Um, and I started looking around. I started watching titles, um, sort of going through and doing a sampling of, of shows that I'd read were the most, you know, revered or mentioned when people discussed these subgenres. Um, and after, you know, there's a couple of, couple of days straight, just like me going through all the resources I could, I could find and, and, and watching examples of all the Yowie and Yuri, Shonen and I, Shoujo I that I could find. And um, somewhere in that early stretch, I found Love Stage. Uh, and in most of the cases of these shows that I was looking at, I'd watch, you know, a couple of episodes, handful of episodes, uh, just to kind of get a feel for it and give it a little assessment and figure out what, you know, how it looked, what, you know, what the deal was. Um, but when I started watching Love Stage, I remember it was, it was late at night when I happened upon it. Um, and I watched all 10 episodes and the OVA like in one sitting the sun was coming up when I was finishing this show and uh I was com just completely blown away I, I blown away I had the, you know you have this character where you, this show where one of the characters is a major like superstar and he falls in love with a boy and he's like you know what I'm in love with a boy okay after like a couple of episodes you know he, they didn't dedicate the whole show to him like, oh, I can't possibly feel this way. How could I, how, you know, he just kind of ran toward it. I'm speaking of Ryoma, of course. Um, and uh, that blew me away because that's like, that's like, you know, he was this super famous star and uh, sort of equivalent of like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio around Titanic, just like at the height of his celebrity and suddenly in love with a boy. And after a couple of episodes, like, completely cool with it um you had this other boy uh izumi you know the uh, the the youngest son of a world famous you know entertainer family um and again you know in his case not living in the public eye like ryoma is but uh but again like kind of figures out he takes a little longer izumi's a little slower than ryoma is as those of us who've seen it know but uh uh you know, again, he's, he comes from a family that lives a very public life, is in the public eye constantly. Um, and uh, nobody seems to make any effort to dissuade him from, from being in love with, a, with, a, with Ryoma. So I just, I was blown away by all that. I was very charmed by the characters themselves. I, I knew before the first episode was over that I had to, I had to do this show. This show had to happen and I had to do it. Interestingly, I watched the whole thing uh, before I went and looked it up and found that the, that the license in the US was already owned by Sentai Filmworks, a company with which I was, I was uh, you know, well established at that point. Um, so I was like, come on, Sentai owns this license? So I started beating down doors. Um, just to get love stage done. And my mission at the time was, you know, at the time I'd never directed anything. And I, I was just an actor. I, I, I was, I, you know, I didn't, I had no intention of, of getting involved in writing and directing this stuff. But, uh, 
Um, so that first wave of interest from me, those, those, those first uh, meetings I was having, was essentially just trying to convince someone at Sentai that they've got a gold mine in this show and that they should dub it and they should get their people to write a script and direct it. And maybe I'd be in it and maybe I wouldn't. I didn't care as long as the show got done. You know, I was like, you've got a gold mine here. Because my whole contention at the time was, <clears throat> you know, I think, as I said, this stuff has been around forever. And uh, I mean, pretty much as long as anime has been around, there's been uh, uh, queer representation in it. <clears throat> and, uh, pardon me, and we don't, you know, we don't see a lot of that in, in Western anime and, uh, or, or in Western media. Meanwhile, in the United States, I, I'd estimate it's somewhere around maybe 1% of the entire U.S. population regularly consumes anime, right? Meanwhile, if you include all the letters in the alphabet and all the colors on the rainbow, you're talking about 15 to 20% of the population that ascribes to one color or another on the rainbow flag. So it seems to me like that's pretty easy math. Like, look guys, here's a way for you to take your product which appeals to this amount of people and and uh, uh, make it appealing to a, to a demographic that outnumbers your existing audience by a multiple of 15 to 20. So the, the, I'm no business guy, but that's, that seemed like very easy math to me. Nevertheless, it was a very, very hard sell. <laughs> it was just... if, I've, if I've learned one thing from a kind of following the industry with this, is that uh, as, as much as people kind of see anime as this very... Uh, bombastic or yeah. or lurid or campy medium um the actual stuff that tends to get licensed or localized or brought to us is is sort of uh it can it, it, at one point now we live in the era of like simul dubs and simulcasting but at right. one point it was more uh what do we know can is more likely to sell and i think with that like like yahweh got this reputation of oh this is something that a certain subset of women are going to be into and that's so right. small so we're going to just treat it as like a dirty secret or we're going right. to brush it and be like oh, we're not gonna like i mean there were no dubs of boys love anime for a very long time right um because it was just sort of seen as like this is a risky investment where it was either going to sell very low numbers because it only uh markets to a certain demographic or now we're going to get a reputation which seems mm -hmm. that anytime you do anything queer it's like oh but we might get a reputation we yeah, might attract right gay by association <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think for a very long time, and I think in a lot of pockets, they still see it as it, it'll only appeal to a niche market of what's already a niche market. Right? Which is so strange because in my own personal experience, a large portion of, of the anime fan community identifies as queer in some way. Like, yeah, it, isn't that interesting? It's, yeah. it's weird to go to a con and I've been doing cons for about 10 years of my life. And there's so many people I know who are like, oh, this was the first place I felt like I could be myself. This is the first place I felt like I could dress the way I wanted to or present the way I wanted to or be the mm -hmm. way I wanted to because it has this sort of carnivalesque atmosphere where anything right. goes. So there's right. no judgment. And then right. like, it's just amazing how many people you meet and it's, it's like, oh, yeah, you're family too. Like you're, you're, you're one of us. And then yeah. you watch the stuff that comes out and you're like, but we don't, 
but there the characters are there, but not the stories that necessarily revolve. Like you, like you said, you get the side character. And yeah. As great as they are, as much as I have love and admire some of these characters who um, are queer and they are there in the story, that's not their story. They are there right. to support. The, the hero who's usually a teenage boy or a teenage girl who just yes. wants to, you know, become the best at sports or whatever. Right. The best and thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, and I, you know, I absolutely agree. Those are all stellar observations. I, and I, and I noted all the same things. Um, and, uh, you know, Again, it seemed to me, you know, the big the big void over here. And of course, you know, in recent years, it's getting a lot better really quickly. But for such a long time in Western media to see any queer rep uh, queer characters represented, you generally got like I, I sum it up in you had three basic archetypes. And by and large, this is still the case, uh, to be clear. But three archetypes, as I identified them. First, you had the uh, the clownish, uh, the clownish queer, who was, you know, often, you know, a, a, a mincing sort of catty, wisdom dispensing sort of clownish queer. And I'm talking about like Jack from Will and Grace, or uh, the character from Kimmy Schmidt, or uh, you know, I mean. It, it, like 90% of everything fell under that window. You had a gay character who was there to be essentially comic relief or to be sort of a shoulder, a wise but jaded shoulder to cry on for our hero or heroine, you know? Um, which is very limited and gives you, of course, a very clownish and, and ridiculous portrayal of gay people generally. Um, and all based on stereotypes. So not very strong. Uh, in in representation, the second archetype uh, was the martyr, um, and that was a queer character who's generally. And this started happening later. You know, this was in more recent years. You got more of these, but I think uh, writers in the West, Hollywood, uh, they 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 like to show that they're sensitive to the queer struggle. So they'll create a character who's queer like i'll give you uh, my my best example the most crystalline example to me is the cw flash show right um i'm a huge superhero nerd so i watch all of these things anything that's got uh you know tights and a cape i'm i'm there so i'm glued to this flash show right and i remember early in the show season one or two i think they uh uh, they focus a little bit on, on a police captain, the, you know, the captain of the Central City Police where Barry Allen works as CSI. And uh, they, at one point or another, un, un, uh, you know, revealed that this character was gay. Um, and it was very interesting to me because this character had none of the usual, uh, you know, flew that none of the usual sense. flags. Right, exactly. Um, and at one point or another, he's in conversation with someone in the show and he's just like, yada, yada, yada. My husband says, but, and I'm like, wait, what, what? And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. And so then I was paying very close attention, but then, so, you know, they showed us how sensitive they were. Here's a queer character, America, who's not, you know, mincing across the screen or petting a cat or, you know what I mean? But you know, when we got sort of a small arc from that character, and then I remember it peaking, and now he's back, 
he's he's been back since but uh but that arc of his peaked when he was injured in the line of duty and his husband or fiance could not get in to see him in the emergency room because he wasn't technically you know family um and then that was more or less the end of that character's arc for quite some time. So they gave us a really interesting character, a multi-dimensional character, or potentially multi-dimensional character who was queer. But then his arc culminated in gay suffering, which is, you know, my husband can't get in to see me in the emergency room, which we've all read headlines about, you know. Um, it kind of brings to mind for me, like in the late 2000s, uh, A Lifetime had this huge slate of movies and the basic plot was your gay dead son is dead because you're a bad mother and this is Lifetime. Right. Um, he, right. His, entire, his entire character arc is he's dead and it's your fault. And that was just right. like straight, you know, straight people love to watch gay people suffer and then go, oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Oh, we feel for their struggle. And I think, you know, I think a certain amount of that because, you know, let's be honest. I mean, in entertainment, they say if if 10 to 15 percent, you know, there's really no actuality to these numbers. No one really knows. This is an impossible thing to measure who's gay and who's not. You know, who's going to answer that questionnaire, first of all? And second of all, I've never seen the question. So I don't know. But uh, if they say 10 to 15 percent of the population at large. Then in the entertainment industry, those numbers are a bit skewed. You know what I mean? Like, there are a lot more queer people in the entertainment industry. So I have a feeling that some of that came from actually gay writers who were sort of trying to paint a picture of, you know, uh, you know give us some sort of accurate archetype of what suffering is like for queer people. But then what happened was Hollywood got real hot about that and they started using it all over the place. Oh, look, more gay suffering. Oh, here's a, here's a character with AIDS. He's on his way to death. More suffering. Here's a character who can't get into the emergency room to see his husband. Uh, more suffering. Here's a person who just can't quite get life to work. You know what I mean? So archetype two, the gay martyr. Um, archetype three, of course, uh, the psychopathic serial killer. Um, we've had a lot of that in film and television. I was where... just recently watching Silence of the Lambs and Buffalo yeah. Bill is basically just yep. queer panic, the character. Yeah, yeah exactly. Buffalo Bill. Um, you got uh, uh, the, what the, the, the big baddie in Outlander, um, which is a show I didn't watch, but I heard all about it. And as soon as I heard that, you know, they had this villainous character who's, you know, some season ended with him uh, uh, assaulting some other, the, I guess, the main hero in prison. So that arc ends in a prison rape? Like, thanks. Um, I mean, and the even villain... like villains who are not necessarily explicitly gay, but like yeah. Hollywood has a very long, here's like going back to like the Maltese Falcon. Of yeah. Like villains are effeminate and they're yeah. very prissy and yeah. they speak a certain way. Yeah. And we're going to, you know, if we had to guess, they might not be uh, into the family values. Right. But, you know, it's right. it's a way of sort of, you know, saying they're morally bankrupt. Mm hmm. Yeah, Javier Bardem in the in the Bond movie. What was it? I think Quantum of Solace. I think was where Har Javier Bardem was the villain, and of course, gay, and that was a thing. And it was like, you know, I mean, we got to do better than this. I remember I reached a point about a rage about it because uh, again, superhero addict. So yes, I was watching Gotham, and in Gotham, they gave us at the point at which I stopped watching it, they had given us three queer characters. 
the penguin who decided he who suddenly figured out he was in love with the Riddler who went into queer panic and used it as an excuse for an entire season to murder people. Okay, thanks. Um, Barbara, Barbara Keene is the character's name. She was in love with the hero, James Gordon. That didn't work out, so she started dating girls. Thanks. Uh, then she meets the girl, and I forget her name. I call her not Catwoman. But she, uh, another character who came out of being in a relationship with her brother, and then started dating Barbara, and they became a lesbian couple, and, you know, crime mistresses of Gotham. Like, just using their lesbian relationship as a catalyst to go and murder, create mayhem. And so, like, you know, that's what we get. Those are our three archetypes. The clown, the martyr, and the psycho. And, uh, I, you know, I, I've been, I, I cottoned onto that quite some time ago, and it just, I, it always made me roll my eyes whenever there was i'd heard there was a gay character in this movie or this show i'm like great how do they suffer you know meanwhile anime has had characters in it uh who you know they've had boys in dresses all over the place they've had girls in in pants all over the place they've had uh, uh, you know, gay boys, lesbian girls, people who are, are, they've had ace characters in anime. I mean, the representation, the spectrum is so much broader in anime than it is in Western media. I just, I've, I found it absolutely uh, uh, surprising. Absolutely surprising. One thing that's really gotten to me too is like you do have those archetypes in anime and I I will say for the record that I love gay villains if they're done well. Yeah. Uh, and you have that. Like you have villains. It's like I know like Sailor Moon, you have Zoysite and Quinzite who are one of the large villains of the first season. Right. And they was like, well, they're a gay couple, yes, and they're very loving and tender and their relationship is healthy. They're just all both terrible people at the same time like divorced right. from their sexuality they're both very bad people or yeah. uh characters like Leron and Grunlog and who he's very campy and very effeminate but he's also like the smartest person in the room he's just like the one that's you know looking after everyone not in the jaded friend way but like in the like I have to look after you way it's yeah you get the stereotypes but then you get more of a humanization too they're not only there to be a one note right. uh, thing they say for an episode and they go because we need a gay character for a shock. Well, you know, it makes sense to make a villain gay because villains tend to be, you know, they potentially can be the richest characters in a franchise, the deepest characters, the ones who suffered and fractured and created suffering. That's an amazingly rich character arc. But you know, here in the West, we tend to be less, uh, we, we tend to be pretty shallow about those arcs. So we'll present a character as gay and just, as, you know, we'll, we, we, the, our writers will just kind of chalk it up to it's part of their psychosis. And meanwhile, in anime, anime has been a lot more interested in uh, uh, deeper character development. When it's interested in character development at all, you know, there's there are plenty of shows that, as you say, it's just about I'm a young boy and I want to be the best of whatever the thing the show is about. You know what I mean? And like, that's a different kind of storytelling and just as valid. But that's not, you know, that's generally not the territory where you find the really rich characters. So it's talking about like complicated villainous characters who have a queer 
you know, either are explicitly queer or have those undertones. You actually did play um, Berg Kotz in Gatchaman Crowd. So going yeah. full circle, you're talking about watching the original dub. And uh, that's a character who is a very sort of... Uh, androgynous and ambiguous and uh, that's kind of fun like even though you do have the characters who sometimes you're like I wish they would just say what the obvious is then you have a character where that sort of uh non not non-binary non there's no real answer it's fun to mess with well he's he's like a living archetype of gender fluidity isn't he I mean in the the version of Berg that I played in Gatchaman crowds crowds insight would kiss someone and become them like, how's that <laughs> for a metaphor for gender fluidity? It's, it's not strictly speaking accurate or very insightful, but, uh, uh, you know, that's a, that's a pretty powerful metaphor. I think, you know, someone, someone online at some point or another asked me if I felt like Berg Katze was a, was, a, uh, was a good example of queer representation. And I don't know that I'd go that far. I mean, I think... You know, Berg, like all like all creatures and things in anime, is a metaphor. Um, but Berg is an you know an alien creature, another dimension. Who knows if he's going against the grain, uh, you know, of whatever the people the people that he that he comes from. Um, you know, he's kind of an anomalous creature, I think. But uh, but yeah, qu- quite a metaphor for if nothing else, gender fluidity. Um, so going back to love stage you're knocking down the doors at sentai you're trying you're like they have the license and they've subtitled it how do you convince them to dub it like what what's the thing that makes them say okay here you go well i'll tell you what man i uh yeah thank you for getting me back onto that train um you know, initially I was I was beating down doors, telling them they needed to do this material for all the reasons I listed, but with no intention of doing it myself. I mean, I was essentially, I, I had seen a vision of the Holy Grail, right? And I was looking for someone else to take up the cause. And uh, <clears throat> I wasn't I wasn't very lucky. I, you know, I had, a, I had folks at Sentai, you know, saying, you know, that's a really great idea, Dave. But I'll tell you, in the business of dub and anime, things move really fast. Production studios have about a million things on their list every day. So asking them to go completely outside their usual box and find this other title to dub when they've got like, when they're behind schedule on five other titles, you know what I mean? Like, it's a hard sell. Um, it wasn't difficult and it's rarely difficult to get anyone who works in a creative field to understand the validity of the material. Um, it wasn't like I was meeting any sort of like header bro blocking, you know what I mean? There was none of that. It was just, um, time and resources were, were being spent elsewhere. So that idea never really got off the ground. I took that idea to Dallas too. And, uh, you know, same thing. I just, I got a lot of support, uh, particularly from production side, um, talking about that material, but Nobody, you know, no single individual was really willing to step up and go, all right, I, you're right, Dave, and I'm going to make this happen. So, uh, you know, I'd been selling that idea for a couple of years until finally I just sort of reached a point where, all right, um, this has just got to happen. And if no one is going to pick the sword out of this stone, then I will do it. <laughs> so I went back to Sentai, and this was after some time of quiet. 
um, went back to Sentai, spoke with uh, Joey Gubo, the director of production. There. And I was basically, it was a Hail Mary pass. I'd prepared my whole speech. It was just going to be a we've got to do this now, uh, pull no punches sort of situation. And uh, Joey was not the person that I had talked to at Sentai before about this. So this was the first time Joey and I were having this conversation. And I got through maybe a minute of my diatribe. And Joey was like, you know what? I hear you. Hold on one second. And he went to the CEO of the company, who happened to be in the office that day, um, and came back a couple of minutes later with a green light. He was like, we're doing it. And the difference was that what I was selling him then was, let me do this. I'll write it. I'll direct it. I'll make it happen. You guys have nothing to lose. You know, they'd already licensed the show. It was not an expensive license. Um, they'd already released it on disc with a sub and it had already run its sales course. So if, you know, less what we were going to spend on production, any dime that show made was going to be icing on the cake. So they had very little to lose. Uh, uh, and they said, okay, Dave, we're going to do this. This is going to be your baby. Show us what you got. So... I was not ready for a yes. I was like, yes, are, really? Are we, are you kidding? Is this really happening? <laughs> I, I, I had no, I, I had virtually no expectation that it was going to finally land after about two, three years at that point of, um, but land it did. And so, uh, off we went and I would spend the next several months writing the script. I'm a very slow script writer, which is why I don't do more of that. Um, but, uh, uh, I started working on it and very quickly after that conversation, Joey came to me and said, Hey, you know, we've got this other show, Kitarijime, my hero. Um, it's another BL show. You, you take a look at it, see what you think. Maybe we'll, we'll dub this one. Uh, you know, they had a high interest in, uh, they had, you know, really a higher interest in dubbing that title than they did in love stage because it was newer, um, and, you know, more, it was a, uh, it's just a newer title. So I think it was only out for a year at that point. Um, so I went home and I watched the show and I called him back and I was like, you don't want to dump this. <laughs> like, this is not a good idea. You know, you've got a, you've got a teacher in love with a student. I think the show handles it very well, but, uh, and very sensitively and very intelligently but it's a hot point. That's a, that's triggerable territory for us over here. You know, this right toward the beginning of like the whole me too movement and you know, the Harvey Weinstein stuff and the Kevin Spacey stuff. And then I was just like, this is a little too hot. Um, and they were like, really, uh, really? You think? And they, they, they hit me up about that a few more times. Like, have you thought about that? Or like, have you changed your mind? And I was like, and I really did. I mean, make no mistake, I loved Hita Rijime, My Hero, the first time I watched it. But I just thought, um, you know, my desire to stand before my tribe and say, hello, brothers and sisters, I am here to sing you a song of yourselves in anime. Now here's one about a teacher in love with a student. <laughs> you know what I mean? I felt like that was going to be a mistake. But... <clears throat> that's because I was stuck thinking on the grander scale, the idea of, of pushing the material to, to new viewership. 
Um, Hate to Resume, my hero among those who already loved Yaoi and Shonen I, was a celebrated title uh, for good reason. It's a really well-rendered show. And uh, again, it's a very hot point, a, a, a teacher in love with a student. But, you know, you, when you kind of filter it through the, the cultural differences of that experience in Japan, then here, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it makes more sense when you're watching a Japanese text, I suppose. Still triggerable territory. And the thing that eventually pushed me over the fence for Hitorizume made me think, oh, now I have to do this show, was in the midst of all this consideration, the film Call Me By Your Name came out. Did you see this one, Sully? I actually have not because oh. I, I love movies. That Make no mistake, I uh, frequently will, will cite very obscure films. I actually do a panel on like Japanese film, but I don't go to the movies very often. I Because I did not have a car in college and... Uh, yeah. So I, my way of watching movies, it'll come out like on home release in three months and then I'll get around to it. Right. I'm yes, I understand. I'm, I'm roughly <laughs> the same. But let me tell you something. Put that on your list. This is a, a completely free commercial for that film, but it's breathtaking. I will and also say that when it came out, I saw all of the like hot takes and I'm like, I'm not willing to get in this argument today. You guys can like hash it out amongst yourselves and I'll wait till the academics, you know, yeah. get to it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't pay attention to any of that. As it was a fairly, fairly new film. Um, it opened very recently when I saw it. Uh, again, I these I used to be an avid moviegoer, but these days I don't go to movie theaters as often because I I, I find them very, very annoying <laughs> and too expensive to be that annoying. So, like you, I tend to wait for home release. But that one. Uh, my friend Caitlin and I had to see. So we went and saw that film and I was absolutely blown away by it. And interestingly, it's a, something of a similar situation. Not a teacher and a student, but you've got this boy played by uh, Timothy Chalamet, who's 17. They live in Italy, so that's not a big deal over there. Um, and a grad student who's there working with uh, the boy's father, who is a college professor. And the grad student's supposed to be, I think, like uh, mid 20, I think. So that's a very similar age difference that uh, uh, as the difference between Kosuke and Masahiro, Hitorizu Hiro. And um, very quickly, any age discrepancy between those two characters, any station discrepancy between those characters took an immediate backseat to the emotional things that were in their way. You know, the actual story. <laughs> so having seen that film and having seen how well they navigated that material and the absolutely breathtaking love story that resulted from it, I thought... If we can strike a bell like that with He to Regime, My Hero, then at least we can put out a show that's more or less above reproach, you know? Um, so I went back to Joey and said, yes, let's absolutely do this. In fact, let me co-write it. <laughs> so when you talk about, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, what were you going to ask? Go ahead. I can when I'll you, talk forever. So. <laughs> when you talk about like how some of these BL titles have, uh, let, let's say, sort of hot points to them, I think 
you talking about trying to present this to a wider queer audience, not necessarily a, an anime watching audience. Uh, there's so many like articles and sort of dismissals of mm-hmm. Shonen Ai and Shoujo Ai. And I, I do not want to say for anyone listening at home that I do not have qualms with the genre. I could sit all day and say there's some stuff I, I think is not great but at the same time i also have to say that the women who sort of founded what we consider modern bl were also reading jean Genet. yeah and you know they were very highly educated women they were you know using it as sort of a catalyst to use you know sequential art to talk about social issues they had interracial gay romances yeah. in their comics so yeah you know and at the same time I, I know a frequent thing especially like if you read like a like a gay news site or or something that's more geared towards just a general lgbtq audience it'll say like oh well yaoi or yuri is heterosexist because there's a masculine partner and a feminine partner or it's uh it's a voyeuristic look into gay life and i will say that that can be there but the same time it's like i know gay couples who there is a more masculine the more feminine and then there are couples who are not it's like you can't you know it's so hard to say there's a right or wrong experience there necessarily and so my thing is i was like you know there is some yaoi that i think you know is beautifully written or it's it captures feelings for me it was sort of the the gateway into sort of navigating romantic feelings because when you're young and you're like a teenager in high school and you're dealing with uh, the fact you're like boys well your options are like hardcore erotica that like Mm -hmm. is thrust upon you very quickly and it's very uncomfortable or things like Gowie, which, you know, there is some stuff I'm like, oh, that yeah, someone drew that. Someone sat down with their own God given hands. And drew yes. That. And then there's a lot of it. that's like, oh, these are two boys who there might be a sex thing and there yeah. or there might be something where there's more of a maybe not sex, but more of an erotic component. But it, the main storyline is still right. realistic or, oh, these are people navigating hormones and feelings. Yeah. And, and it's more approachable for like a younger or a more inexperienced audience than some of the stuff that people I feel like I, I've often told friends. It's like, you know, when you come out, sometimes it feels like someone like has pushed you into the deep end of the swimming pool and said, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we can talk about that one for hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. My, you know, when I went through all that, it was in the 80s. So there was even less to look at. <laughs> I, I have many, I have many gay friends from many different generations. Yeah. And uh, one thing has not changed is the whole you come out and it's, well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> figure it out. Although I now know people who, you know, I'm 25 and there are people who are coming out, you know, uh, it, even just five years younger than me. And I'm like, God, mm-hmm. you know, it's so easy now. You yeah. It's so easy. I didn't yeah. have, when I came out, I didn't get my own HBO special. I had to just deal no. with it. Yes. I had to perform for the audience in my head. Um. Oh, yeah. I mean, when, you know, when, when I was wrestling with this stuff, it was, uh, I, was a, I was a kid in the 80s in Texas at the height of the AIDS crisis, Sully. <laughs> so to, like, even acknowledge yourself as a gay person was... It was hostile territory. It was very, very hostile territory. And I know that had I had access to something like Yaoi, Yuri, Shonenai, Shoujoai, that showed me any version of my own story, however heightened, um, it could have been extremely useful in preventing me from feeling that 
alienation and ostracization that comes part and parcel to coming to terms with oneself as a gay person in your youth. Um, and that's part of the reason I've been drumming so loudly about getting this stuff out there. Because, the, you know, the larger part of, our, of the anime viewing audience is young people. And many of them are struggling with the very same issues that the young people in these shows they're watching are struggling. You know, anime generally features the young. That's, that's uh, you know, as you say, it's generally teenage kids going through some sort of crisis. Uh, there's very little anime out there about adults. <laughs> Sadly, when you get to um, 25, I watch some of these shows. I'm like, God, what must it be like to have that as a problem? Like, yeah. wait, wait till you have to pay rent and you have to yeah. figure out what you're doing after grad school, kid. Then come <laughs> to me about your soccer championship. Yeah, where's that anime? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, there was there's a there was a real lack of 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 stuff to identify with uh, when you were young. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I used to take a much harder line about the more problematic stuff. Um, you know, the intergenerational relationships, the the non consensual sex trope that always seems to drop in somewhere like. Uh, you know, I remember, and I remember when I had my mind changed, um, because I was in, I played the character Ren in a show, in the anime adaptation of Dramatical Murder. Anybody remember this one? I um, do, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and I had all kinds of feelings about that. I remember it was Chris Ayers, a dear friend, Chris Ayers, who directed that show, and he... Uh, told me about it. You know, he was talking to me. He called me about it and was and was telling me about the show and telling me about how there's there's there are all sorts of like queer subplots. There are gay characters that are. I I thought this is fantastic. This is great. And we recorded the thing. And you know, I was Ren the dog. So and generally the way we record anime is we go through our scenes, right? Like I'm not watching the whole episode when I record. We're we're generally going where the my character and recording those passages. So there was a lot of the queer subplots and, and whatnot that I was not aware of that show. Um, I became highly aware of them when we got to the OVA, which features all the bad from the game, which are essentially all some different version of a prison rape, right? And I'm like, really? This is where we're going to end this story? This? This is what we get? Where's the good endings, OVA? You know what I mean? I remember a very good friend of mine back when the game came out and like the game where you had to like like download a fan translation. She's like, oh yeah, give it a right. shot. And I like played like two minutes and I was like, oh, he's just walking down the street. Whoa, Nelly, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, there is stuff like that. I mean, you talk about like the subplots, even anime that's not specifically got a queer character or does not have a queer subplot. Like it's... I think it's just a very liminal genre. Like, there's always a way to read it very easily. Like, you know, yeah. there are some, there are, I, I was a literature student, so I was like, there are some queer readings and things. I'm like, this is a big stretch of the imagination. Like, you're really grasping extras yeah. to make this the way. And then with anime, it's like, no, it's very easy to, to, to play with how characters can be seen or interpreted. And, like, even, like, for me, there were characters who were not gay. They were explicitly heterosexual, but... Mm -hmm. 
because they have a different form of masculinity as someone like who uh, is not very masculine myself. It's fun to see a character like Tamaki and Oran who, you know, he's he's very into women, but he if you wouldn't believe it unless you knew that about that character. Like men in anime can be they can show vulnerability, they can cry, they can be androgynous, or they yeah. can not be they don't have to look like Batman or Superman. They can do things right. and women can be masculine or characters can have a sort of they don't necessarily have to be one way or the other they can be very androgynous yeah absolutely well, i think there's less hysteria about about sexual identity and gender identity interestingly you know there was no homophobia until western influence leaked into japan that was one of <laughs> the not. gifts we gave <laughs> I actually, You're welcome, Japan. It was kind of funny. I was in a class in college, and my professor is just like walking down the aisle past my desk. She's like, oh, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, it's called Male Homoeroticism in the Tokugawa Period of Japan. She's like, oh, of course. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's basically the Dutch The Dutch came and yeah. ruined everything. And it's yeah. kind of funny that homosexuality was frequently like outlawed and then reinstated based on yeah. like what the shoguns were fighting over. And usually it was, your boyfriend is getting with my boyfriend. I don't like this. It's illegal now. Right. We can't keep fighting over kabuki prostitutes. This is not how our country is going to run itself. Um, <laughs> and there are characters, like, again, I do a Japanese film panel, and there is the character of Yukinojo and Yukinodo Hinji, which is he is a, a, a onagata performer. He lives as a woman, basically. He is a mm -hmm. man. It's not necessarily a strict trans narrative, but he, when he is off stage, he wears women's clothing and speaks in a women's a dialect yeah, and Madam Butterfly. Yes, yeah. like that. And then there are characters in anime who, you know, they're male, but they use Atashi as a personal program, which is right. uh, very heavily coded as feminine or camp gay. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, that's one thing I like about the Japanese language is, you know, here, your your pronouns are something that other people bequeath upon you. Mm -hmm. But in Japan, it's, you can do, it's, it's you know, do your own way. And I think that kind of adds to how characters can be more liminal is that they can use things like language even to codify themselves in ways that English does not necessarily have the, the capacity for. It's very interesting to see how, you know, how the non-binary characters and the, and the, you know, the, the less stringently defined characters are handled over there. I mean, it's very interesting, and I had a, I had a fascinating experience. I was in Osaka, um, just maybe about a half a year ago for a convention over there, um, and the reason I was there was because, and I I can't remember the seiyu's name. It's terrible, but uh, uh, it's terrible that I can't remember. But um, uh, it was a seiyu with whom I shared two roles, and that was uh, Ray or uh, Reiji in Diabolic Lovers and Bulat in Akame Ga Kill. Now, as I've already described, Bulat in Akame Ga Kill was a, was a lightning strike for me. And I knew, you know, we were going to panel together, I working through a translator was going to panel with this seiyu and these kids were going to be asking questions about what was it like to play that character? You know, I was ready for that. But I wanted to be sure that I could give them my real answers. You know what I mean? So I talked to the uh, translator for, for the seiyu. I talked to the guy who was going to host the panel. And I wanted to make sure that 
by answering those questions honestly and talking about the impact that playing that character had on me that I wasn't going to alienate uh, either the audience or the other participants on the panel or anything like that. I didn't want to agitate anybody, you know what I mean? But I wanted to be able to answer those questions honestly and not say stuff like, oh, yeah, Bula was a great warrior. I was honored to play it. You know, I mean, it, true, but... There was more to talk about there, you know. You wanted to um, give more than the sort of uh, the crib notes actor. I, I'm just doing yeah. this for a, yeah. You wanted to do some dramaturgy. Yeah, and and uh, I really felt strongly about that, and I was nervous because I was under the impression, <clears throat> never having been to Japan before, and not really knowing very much about Japan, um, that it was a, a much more. A uh, uh, vilified thing, like just even talking about sexuality at all was just verboten. And this was a polite nation, and they didn't want to hear about things like you know. There were all kinds of reasons I was nervous about alienating. So turns out that was all ridiculous, and it's like it's as it's at least as easy to talk about in Japan as it is. And in fact, you know, their hangups are different hangups. So it's actually way easier, you know? And I found an interesting thing happened, Sully. When, you know, when I got there on the first day, um, one of the very first things they had me do was go for an autograph session. And I was like, wait, really? Like, nobody here knows who I am. Like, if I went to a con in America, stand in to, like, get the signature of, like, the German dub actor for Wonder Woman. You know what I mean? Like, how much... <laughs> So, uh, you know, I found that curious. And yeah, I went and I sat for the photograph session and it was not a long line. I went and did a photo shoot and by then it had caught on that I had done a, a dub of Galgo 13, right? And Galgo 13 is a big deal in Japan. They're James Bond, TV shows, movies, everything. So once it got around that I was involved in that show, the line got a little longer for a photo session. And then that afternoon on the second day, I did this. And then that panel, I talked about Bulat. Um, I talked about what he'd led me to, the work I'd been, I'd been doing in the States since then. Um, and the audience was extremely receptive. And in fact, the next morning, I went down for an autograph session. And every one of these people who came through the line, just about every one of them, wanted to tell me how much it meant to them that I had gone up and talked about that at their panel. So it was just such an extraordinary level of support and encouragement from this nation where I was where I was like, I, I don't even know if I can talk about this over here. <laughs> you know, so I found it incredibly surprising. So I, I, I gained a lot more insight into, into, you know, the Japanese perspective. And I found it very enlightening and hard. But, um, but back to Dramatical Murder. So I had, um, I had done that show, and as we all know, it ends in that, in that ridiculous wow. OVA where all the misery happens that one can imagine. Um, and I had feelings about that. Um, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to do a thing and then go, oh, I, I want to change my name. I want to take my name off it. I don't want to be involved in that. I think... That's as probably as close as I ever got to thinking that way. Like just thinking that I had done a bad thing. Like I'd put a bad thing out there, a bad bit of queer representation out there when I 
participated in dramatical um so i had my own feelings about it and i was at a convention and i believe it might have been connell delete in chicago <clears throat> and there was a young man out there uh cosplaying as alba and attending my panel and in my panel I would talk about dramatical murder and how I felt about it. Sort of, you know, casually just dismissing it in, 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 its, in its role as, you know, in its potential. And clearly, you know, seeing this kid in the audience, there was a kid out there who identified with this show, for whom this show had illuminated something. Um, and we actually talked, he came and talked to me for a while after the, after the panel. And, uh, you know, indeed, like he, he, he was aware, like you are, things that might be considered problematic about the show. But even still, even, you know, even to watch a story about a gay person's suffering, you know, we can easily find our because there is an element of queer experience, particularly in America, that involves a lot of suffering. So, I mean, yeah, I can kind of relate to that kid because, like, when I was in high school, like, my, like, one of my anime sort of role models was a transgender serial killer, basically, like, anime Buffalo Bill. And, like, that's perfect. such a horrible, horrible stereotype. But, like, for me, you know, I was both coming to grips with bisexuality and with the fact that I was kind of gender nonconforming. So this mm -hmm. character who's, like, I like men. I like to wear high heels. I like mm -hmm. makeup. And I also like mm -hmm. to use a chainsaw. Well, you know, it's like, it's very empowering. All at all, once. All at once. It's like, that's very empowering. I wish I were, you know, and it kind of goes with what you're saying. It's like you have Jack or you have like Kurt from Glee. Like the gay characters are very, they yeah. have no fight to them. And so yeah. it might be problematic, but sometimes the villains, when you're young and you're rebellious and you're angry and you're frustrated, it's that push. So, you know, maybe dramatical murder. It's very, very, um, let's say out there. That's the polite mm -hmm. term is out there. But, you know, mm -hmm. for some people, sometimes the out there is what, you know, is egregious enough to get them out of their comfort zone and kind of push them. Exactly. And that's really the thing I didn't understand until I had a one-on-one -on -one with this kid. Um, I, I wish I could remember his name. It's terrible. I can't remember <laughs> this kid's name. I but, hope he's uh, listening. <laughs> yeah, I hope he's listening. Maybe he's still wearing the Alba wig. Um, uh, he's a charming young man, and and he educated more me more than I think he know. Um, and it was you know after that, I started to consider that dramatical had its place too. And really at that time, you know, going after the queer-centric material in anime, I was really just trying to find the shows where, uh, that were overall positive. I mean, the ones I went for, uh, the ones I had access to immediately, Hitorijime, which had its own problems and intergenerationship, and further problematic because it was a teacher and his student. Um, and then Love Stage, of course, which has the oft-discussed assault scene in, in in uh, episode three, um, you know, these are problematic turns. And there are a lot of people, you know, I found a lot of the, uh, the new viewership, you know, gay people I've interfaced with watching who don't really know much about, you know, they're, they're, they, they're jarred by these events in a way that an anime fan isn't because in anime we see it 
hypersexual. I mean, it's been it's been part of anime forever. These sort of you know every you know all these relationships seem to end with Kabe. You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> So I mean, it's, uh, the sort of slapsticky sexuality yeah. and stuff. Like, cutie honey, it's very, you know, it's kind of that, you know, beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Like, yeah, we mm-hmm. might be showing, you know, tits or we might be, you know, playing, like someone might run naked in the background, but there's this sort of like, you know, wink and a nod to the audience. Oh, we're just having fun here. No one's really getting hurt. Right. It's, you know, it's funny you mentioned cutie honey. I just finished uh, directing. Yeah, I saw that. I'm very excited. Oh, <laughs> uh, I can't wait for the world to see that one. It's going to be hot. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I sort of, I sort of came back around, uh, to thinking that these shows, you know, even the shows like Dramatical, which have elements in them that I find extremely, um, they still can illuminate something for someone. And the analogy I like to draw, I remember when 50 shades of gray came out now bear in mind i talk about this i have i've never seen 50 shades of gray and i probably won't it doesn't seem like it's really my speed but uh you know this is a show as i understand it about a about a actually becomes like sex slave to her boss now that's not very progressive and at the same time i knew many many women well-educated for think aggressive fierce women who stood in line paid money to see them and i couldn't understand that but i i think it comes from the same thing it's like you know the stories of of the same kinds of oppression and oppression that we know so well so still have a story it's all archetype it's all metaphor you know and i think that's another mistake we make when these shows i mean to turn something into an anime is to turn it into a metaphor um i think that's the gift of animation really because i mean you could very easily make love stage or 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 hiterijime my hero into a live action story like it could it's not like they're in space or they you know turn into aliens or anything or use magic it's very you know rather than in reality but there's something about uh, and, and a lot of yaoi, a lot of boys' love is grounded in reality. I mean, Absolutely. there are fantasy stories, but, you know, if you if you were to say, what is the platonic ideal of yaoi? It's, you know, oh, you know, some kids in high school or college fall in love. Well, that's that's based in reality, but there's something about it being in a comic or being animated that sort of adds this mm-hmm. level of surreal surreality, if I can yeah. speak English for a second, that <laughs> kind of puts a both a, a boundary between itself and the viewer and also sort of uh, breaks the boundary of watching. Right. So there's a lot of stuff that you sort of uh, it, you, you, you sort of take for granted or you accept the sort of, uh, you know, you accept this as part of how this world that you're watching functions because it is animated and therefore, you know, everyone in animation is beautiful with perfect clear skin and huge eyes and blue hair and, you know, no one is ugly, no one is no one has any problems outside of the right. story. They are in this world is completely created for them. And there's something very free. I think that's why so many, you know, people who are younger or like if you go to an anime con, a lot of the people there, they have, you know, they have problems in their own life. But this is a good escape because, yeah. you know, the problem in this world is aliens are invading or, you know, something that's so fantastic. Right. That they have no real emotional investment as opposed to when you come into the real world. And it's again, I have 
rent to pay. I have to find a job. I have to deal with my relationship, which is not like a romance story, which has, you know, complicated (laughs) human emotions that cannot be solved in 20 minutes. I don't know what you mean. Um, Yes. Yeah, I absolutely. And in fact, it's all abstraction. And I mean, I, I, I mean, to to turn a thing into an animated title is to is to make it an abstraction immediately, which forces everything into the right creative brain. You know, so even to watch it, you have to watch it with a different set of lenses. And it's generally not something we think about. It's just sort of a click. It's a switch in the brain. But when you're watching something that's animated, particularly if it's not meant to be farce or satire, you know, we're, we're very familiar with shows like Family Guy, Big Mouth. And, you know, these, these, these are satirical animated uh, titles. And that's generally, I mean, kids are used to the Saturday morning, the kids' cartoons. That's, there's not a lot of, you know, there's, not, there's, there's, there's less metaphor in and then within the context of a yao, you know, you've got your traditional events in, in yao. One of them is, <clears throat> pardon, the, uh, the instance where generally the elder and the more sullen of the characters essentially will be forcing themselves on the younger and more confused and oblivious character until the confused and oblivious character just relents. Uh, but those incidents of forced intimacy such as specifically the in love stage in episode three Ryama goes to Izumi's house trying to dispel himself of this what he thinks is an illusion love with this boy because he was a girl and he's just gonna dispel that that uh, uh you know his problem by seeing the boy naked one more time and he forcibly strips him uh it's pretty, you know, I mean, the show kind of plays it for laughs. It, the show kind of tries to be cute. I think there's triggered by that sort of thing. But over here, that's tough to watch. Yeah. And if you jump ship at that point, you you miss the apology sequence in episode four, which is beautiful. Does it absolve real of his behavior? Real? Mm, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, in this story, it's enough for Izumi to consider Ryoma in a different way. Meanwhile, the thing that we miss is that event itself is metaphor. And we see it commonly in these stories. And what it is is a metaphor for the, the, the level of desperation you can reach after spending so long denying and, and repressing your feelings. Any of us who've been through the experience of coming out as a queer person know that. We know exactly how we begin to eat ourselves when we hide, you know? And that's what that is. It's a metaphor for that. Now, it's a common metaphor. And as metaphors become common, they begin to lose their power. I think we could use some new ones in anime. And I think they're coming. Um, You know, newer shows like... Like uh, Yuri on Ice, which had none of that. Bloom into You, which which had really none of that. Um, that those those incidents of forced int- intimacy or super aggressive uh, courtship, you know, it's it's a metaphor for for the for the desperation of of years of courtship. Um, likewise, uh, there's often in these stories these yaoi, these shonen eye. 
um, and Yuri too, for that matter. There's there's often the character who's I suppose the uke, generally, um, who is completely oblivious, totally confused, has no you know sort of is com- trying to find ways to not think of the these emotions they're now, which is all metaphor for coming to terms with oneself as a queer person. I mean, I don't know what your experience but when I finally told it's gay, they were all like, yeah, when did you figure it? <laughs> no, mine you was, know? mine was, uh, not as, mine was, uh, I kind of had to figure it out for myself. And then somehow the fact that I like lip synced to Dolly Parton songs as a child and like could memorize golden girls quotes. Yeah. Not, did not hit anyone but my grandma and that she had to like sit my mother down and be like this is something you should have figured out when he was mm-hmm. five mm-hmm. um but when you talk about like stuff that's coming out this this better in terms of representation japan's kind of going through a moment right now from what i've seen um, yeah there's a show that i'm really into it's not an anime it's a live action japanese show called have or where is my skirt or my skirt where is it and it's about this teacher he is gay he identifies as a gay man but when he teaches he teaches in drag he wears women's clothing um and he's played by the actor who actually just recently played frankenfurter in the japanese story of rocky horror that's how i found it is <laughs> i'm very no rawson's like oh god so he's talking about rocky horror again and we need to cut his mic um but i follow that show everywhere i have every cast down from every country imaginable and i got into the japan cast and he apparently has like a thing for playing cross-dressing characters and he plays his teacher and even though, as far as I've seen the show, there's not another gay character, he sort of, like, helps all of his students come out more in a metaphorical, like, there's a kid who always wears a mask over, like, a, a medical mask because he's uh, he's uncomfortable with his face. And it's sort yeah. of this coming out story without there necessarily being a, a queer part to it. Right. It's just expose yourself to the world here. Let me, your, your cross-dressing teacher, be the liaison between this inner world that you hide in and the outside world I want you to be a part of. And I'm like, I really wish someone would like local, like, you know, licenses or something. Cause this yeah. is a great show, but you know, we, we, we very seldom want to look at queer narratives from other countries because America is the only country where gay people exist. And that's right. just, that's a scientific fact. I'm sorry. Everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I have to say, I share your passion for, I don't have it in every uh, language, but I will go on record as saying Richard O'Brien, genius. That um, was my coming out was shaped by anime and Rocky Horror, and God was that a combination. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a worthy process, my friend. And I really do have to say this too, like I, I look at the time warp scene in that movie, which I love, where all the the Transylvanians they are every shape, size, color, oh. age, ethnicity, and then you walk into an anime con. And yes. that's what that's why I've tried to tell people again, like when you your first time at an anime con, you were Brad and Janet and you're entering the time warp. Everyone there is so completely free and happy. They yeah. are everybody you can imagine. And they are just letting themselves. They're celebrating themselves. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of sad now because I feel like we're entering a period where uh some darker undercurrents in the anime community are starting to get louder. And I feel yeah. like people are kind of like not seeing that anymore like there's this sort of uh hesitancy now like people are sort of backing back and i'm like this is very upsetting for me because i really do want it to just be everyone can come 
dress, you know, come dress how you wish, be how you wish, speak how you wish. Yeah. This is a, there is no normalcy here. You have left, you have left the threshold of the real world when you enter this community in a way. I'm always happy to be in any place which encourages you to fly your freak flag as high as possible. I love it. That's, I mean, like it was, I, I've, I've, I just, I'm so, I wish I'd discovered conventions when I was a kid. Meanwhile, I was busy skating around on, on quad skates in my garage pretending I was Kira from Xanadu. So I had my, my own thing, you know. You say you wish you'd gone to cons, but I have way too many stories of teenage me doing stupid things or listening to people that I should not have been listening to. Yeah. And then that's why now when I'm at cons, I'm just like, okay, I have to be the mother now. Don't do that. Do, do, do not run. Do not. Okay, please, please put that down. We are in public. Don't smear paint on the hotel. Yes. This is a sh- and so somehow I've also <laughs> turned in from the you know, like everyone party be free to let's be party and be free, but in a polite way that doesn't cause yes. you, know, you know property damage. Yes. <laughs> a little um, elegance, you know. This is what ele- it's our job, Sully. This is our job. It's our job to spread these things in the world. You know, we need men capable of doing this because if all your men are warriors and all your women are nurturers. Nothing get done. <laughs> I am very much into the sort of like as much as I also agree in the three archetypes of queer representation of media. A lot of time, I love that thing Harvey Firestein. He's in the cellular closet, and they go to him. He just says, "You know, I like the sissy. I like the sissy characters because, in a weird way, they're subversive. And sometimes, like I joked at the top, I said, oh, yeah, I'm I'm the third impact token queen.' But in a way, I treat that as a role <laughs> of respect because I have to be the mother. I get to yeah. be." I get to imbue, I love what Liron says in Gurren Log, and like, it's weird to quote an anime, but I love how he says, you know, it's, I'm kind of like a man, I'm kind of like a woman, I get to do both if I feel like it. It's, mm-hmm. And it's such a, it's such a, uh, a sort of nonchalant way of doing it. There's no big coming out, there's no I am what I am song. It's just mm-hmm. this sort of, I'm like this, and isn't that fun? Isn't it just so freeing, you know? That's just how it is, and I think, you know, sometimes not like when Chris said that uh, toler or the tolerance is born of boredom. I think it's born of nonchalance. I think yeah. it's that. So you you've mentioned Love Stage and Hitori GMA, my hero. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you looking like? Is there anything like any LGBTQ characters or series or anything that like you're excited about that you're looking at that you're thinking about that you're pushing? I can't wait to see Given. Sully, I am on fire for Given. I mean, I don't know what its trajectory is. I don't think the, I don't, I, I don't think the license wired over here yet. I mean, it's, it hasn't even hit in Japan quite yet. But uh, yeah, I mean, if that show were to end up here uh, and, and ripe for an adaptation, I'd love to be the one doing it. Um, no guarantee that's gonna happen. In any event, I'm just excited that it's coming uh it it sounds lovely and it looks amazing and it's about you know four gay boys in a rock band which is you know in in certain respects my life story (laughs) so uh you know i I, i'm really excited for that i'm really excited about uh 10 count there's been an announcement that 10 count's going to hit the airwaves in so I'm really excited to see how that goes. And I'm particularly interested because there's a lot of triggerable material in 10 Count. 
again, it's it's it 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 treads on some pretty complicated and potentially problematic ground. But I'm wondering what the new sort of tenor of Yaoi and Yuri that we're starting to see from Japan, how that's going to affect Ten Counts adaptation. I'm very curious to see how that's going to. From my understanding, because I I watch I watch a lot of anime, but I tend to learn more of the the queer media I get from Japan. I start either reading it first, or it's something like it's a non anime thing. It's a live action, and uh, yeah, reading Ten Cow, I have not finished. I, I read a few chapters when it was still a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back two or three years, there was this sort of wave of realism, I guess kind of answering the common critiques of Yaoi being very, very high fantasy in a way, very falling into the same story. And then there's yeah. a few, there's one I like called Sweetheart Trigger. And it's, it's, it's very, it's got some hot things. I know that someone ends with a gun up to their head, but up until then, it's about two college kids. And one of them- Well, is, how's that for a metaphor? A gun to your head? <laughs> but let me let me tell you again about the entire decade of the 80s. <laughs> but it's this college kid, and one of them is openly gay, and one of them is this guy who's experimenting. And they're in college, and they're sort of having a, an experimental relationship. And one of the guys, like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then the gay guy listens to Lana Del Rey. And I'm like, God, this woman who wrote this must have been and like in an American college. It point like hanging around all the gays because god did i not know that story happened every week yeah. of my life in college yeah. um and it's sort of becoming more realistic and more you know as much as we sort of complain about the the the, the problematic aspects again like just going over the people i've been friends with it's like i don't know any of them that have a sort of perfect squeaky clean yeah uh, nobody no one does, and I'm not saying that excuses it, but at the same time, it's like, I could not imagine a story that's necessarily realistic, that doesn't have even the slightest hint of the salacious in there right. in, in some way, because human beings are complicated. Well, it's another thing, as, as I've grown fond of saying, because, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Hito Rizume has come under a little bit of fire because of the intergeneral relationship. Love Stage has come under a little bit of fire because of the episode three sequence but here's what i like to say in response if we made shows about perfectly reasonable people who only made sensible decisions nobody would ever watch that show (laughs) so you've got to have some conflict you've got to have some missteps you've got to have mistakes and bad judgment otherwise you've got no story so it's gonna be there. No matter what the story is, someone's gonna do something dumb or ill-advised. Otherwise, what's the point of making the story? You know, the interesting part is seeing how that narrative itself deals with. And that's my response to people who find uh, episode three of Love Stage problem. Is that okay? But what you have to do after that sequence where Ryoma shows up and forcibly strips Izumi, is you have to hang in there for the rest of the show because Ryoma will go through a process of trying to understand how wrong that behavior is, trying to make up for it, and trying to make himself a better man, to be worthy of this boy, to come from a low point like that, where you have, you've invaded someone's house and assaulted them. I mean, that's heavy. If that happened in life, there'd be prison. But to watch a show like Love Stage, which is ultimately, it's very brightly colored, colored, charm, very innocuous, really. 
to watch a show like that, deal with an event like that, to let the narrative itself take you is purely extraordinary. So I'm looking forward to seeing Ken navigates that territory. I also, you know, there's another title. It's called That Blue Sky Feeling. Are you familiar with this one? I am. I am. I love that title so very much. I am keeping a very sharp out for any notice of an AI adaptation coming that way. Because that one treads territory I don't often see, even in manga. The, sh- the story begins with a character who is- already knows he's gay, and, who is- and it's known in his school, and he is ostracized. And then he meets this other boy, like, tries to bring him out of his shell. They become friends. And then that, that to me, is that's a very authentic tale, which I don't see this medium. So, and from what I've read of the mom, it just handles it so. So I'm, 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 I'm keeping all my digits crossed that we see, we see a rotation of that sometime soon. So <laughs> one thing you talk about is you, your sort of mission has been to expose anime to a, a non-anime watching LGBTQ audience. Yeah. Um, I, I guess my question is sort of twofold. And, and, and just do, in my basic research, and by research I mean I looked you up on IMDb and I looked up on your Twitter. Um, that counts. Now that's that research. Counts. That's research. You talk a lot about your rainbow tribe. Yeah. Um, and you talked earlier about this is what you want to bring. Where does, where does that come from? Why do you, where does this feeling of wanting to bring something to the community at large come from? And the, the second half of this question is, what has been the reaction? You talked about some people being hesitant, but like, have you had any from non-anime watching people? Have you had anything like any feedback that stuck out to you? I'll tell you first. The reason I'm doing it is because I remember too well the the feeling of alienation uh, when I was a kid struggling with my sexual identity. Um, I remember too well feeling like that I had no examples to look to, no mentors i had no idols you know i remember that too well and the problem that leads to is the fact that if you're a, if you're if you're a young gay person you're 30% more likely to try suicide every day some kid kills themselves or tries because they think they might be gay and that to me is that's i i can't live i've got to do something about that. Now, I don't know what I can do. I can write strongly worded letters to my senator, or I can go out and pick it in the streets. But it seems like, you know, I happen to work in a medium that is telling your stories. And so I've put my energy to trying to find and feature these. So that as you described here, you know, imagine being a kid feeling like you're on island struggling with this sense of sexual identity and nothing really is out there to or you don't have access to those pamphlets yet anyway you know and you see a story Hitorijime my hero of state three on ice where you've got like you've got two boys in love and figuring and and as you said yourself take a step back from that experience and you realize it took a team of people to write this it took a huge team to animate it it took a huge team of people to adapt it into english like swaths of people worked on telling you this story which is potentially 
a song of yourself, some version of a song of yourself. That's where I want to because I know if I'd seen anything as a kid, it might have brightened my life quite a bit in years where I used it. Um, and because I want my story told, you know, it's, it's like, uh, there's, there's great satisfaction working in a medium where, you know, and it's most of the time I'm swinging a sword at a demon or I'm shooting lasers out of my face or I'm, you know, these extremely heightened situations that we, we're not really supposed to relate to directly. That's not the job. Um, Meanwhile, there are stories out there that are quite small and quite human and, and tell some version of my own tale. And I think that's incredibly exciting. I also think it can really help my industry. Roughly 1% of the English-speaking population consumes anime. Meanwhile, 15 to 20% of the English-speaking population ascribes to one another on rainbow flag and is desperate for quality representation of we get some it's getting better you know our uh, from our usual medium to film television music even video games now but there's still not enough and it can still be and i am engaged in finding talent as best as i can because uh, of how badly i needed it those years ago and i know there are kids like me right now in that struggle feeling like they're alone in the world there's no one there to help them there's no one to look up to and if there were they couldn't tell them i remember that place too and i want to absolve the queer youth of today of that illusion um and to you know to to watch a title that all these people participate bringing it to fruition is an incredibly empowering bit of knowledge. Even if it's dramatical, you know. Um, it obviously so, yeah. helped that one kid that you met. Yeah. I mean, I mean if even one really. person was helped, you know, sometimes that seems like it's enough. Yeah, one person, that's all it takes. I mean, for, for, to, for me to imagine that to, to have participated in, in, in adapting a show like E. Therese, May stage if, if one person out there universe saw he to made them feel less alone then i've done everything i do um the more the merrier but i, I you know maybe maybe it's some abstract effort to save version of myself from the years i fall <laughs> and i don't think that's necessarily uh, an incorrect thing to do, uh, or or a, a, a bad method, I guess, because, um, like I said, like for me, when I was going through the awkward, like like actually being a part of the actual gay community, like that was incredibly difficult for a number of reasons, and even now, I'm not very, I'm not, I hate when people are like I'm not one of those gays, and they usually right. want to like mask for mask, whatever, and I'm not like that. Right. It's like I always like I have a difficult time working my way in that but then the anime community was one already full of freaks so i could just easily yeah. just slide in and no one would notice and two i did find that there were other queer people there and that kind of became my liaison into 
finding my own community is like, well, th- we have this common language we share, and then we have this common identity that we can, you know, collate around. Mm-hmm. And that became a lot easier. And I guess I kind of understand that because like you, um, I do find myself in situations where I am a 25-year-old man talking to other queer people who do not know anime or anything about Japan, really, and I'm the one saying, oh, yeah, this is what I do for a hobby, and I hope you don't think I'm crazy, but let me explain why this has actually got some stuff you probably would like. Um, Just the number of people I know who watch Yuri on Ice that had no interest, they heard about it word of mouth, and then, you know, fell in love with it was kind of shocking to me. Right. Um, Because there are people I would never expect to care who suddenly were watching it every week. Um, and it, it built a community and it got people into this and gave people a safe space to express or even through, even by proxy of fictional characters, express feelings they felt like they couldn't in any other place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just breathtaking. And that's, you know, that's the other thing I think is really laudable about Yaoi and Yuri is that the storytelling itself is very engaging in ways that traditional romance you know, traditional hetero romance, it, it was like I was saying earlier about metaphors getting old. The thing about Yaoi and Yuri is there's, there are no parameters. You know, when you, when you see a heterosexual relationship playing out for you in a film, a television show, novel, whatever, there are accepted parameters. You know, we all know that. We all know that generally the, the man is going to be the more assertive. The woman is going to be the, the, the less assertive. There, there are going to be certain social and practices to be involved in that relationship that we all accept as right. You know, that's just the nature of of hetero romance, as we all know. It. But in a gay romance between two men or two women, those parameters are much more difficult to define, and so a romance of that description can progress in ways and develop in ways that a hetero can't or if it does it's it's taking a trope and turning it upside down you know when we see like i when i was i remember back in the 90s there was a show uh, a, a film oh boy i've lost the title but it was one where it started michael douglas uh as a as an employee of a big deal company and the person in charge of him was a woman played by Demi Moore. And she was sexually harassing Michael Douglas. Now, we all know that's completely ridiculous in the real world. <laughs> in no universe does Demi Moore sexually harass Michael Douglas. That's not, that'll never happen. But like, uh, it's probably happened. But uh, uh, that took that usual paradigm that that sort of that that typical sort of mad men situation you know we've seen play out in hollywood decades where the man is very assertive the woman's a little wily about he's basically backing her which of course in anime happens quite literally followed by copy dot you know um but those you know that that's generally where heterosexual goes and it's either very expected or if it's unexpected, it's dramatically unexpected. Um, but in a queer romance, those parameters are so different, and you can play with. Them. And so I think those those stories have potential to 
up in a, in a much more interesting than the typical heterosexual it's as de- fiction tends to be i think that's incredibly important. and i think that you know that the relationship between victor is extremely and we never really know its borders are you know those are those borders are very very hazy they're friends they're a teacher and a student they're lovers but where does one of those end and the other begin you know it's a little easier to define and i think it was very interesting to see a character like victor who one was based on john cameron mitchell which just thrilled me because apparently Mm. yeah the director saw hedwing and the angry inch Sadly, yeah. she saw the Broadway version, so I mean, yeah. she saw that, yeah, at least it wasn't Neil Patrick. Oh, the I'm, film was so good. One of those- The Criterion is putting it out, and I'm excited. I'm living yes. for it. Yes. Um, oh, yes. But, but yes, she saw I that on Broadway. I have the shooting Broadway. script for that one. Do you? <laughs> yeah. I am hoping, because you know, there is that pro shot of, of Mitchell doing it, like the original, and I'm hoping Criterion is just gonna like slide that on the disc and just hope that we don't find it, you know? Because um, it's like a terrible quality on YouTube. But she saw that play on Broadway <laughs> with John Cameron Mitchell as Hedwig, and then she saw him like out of costume, and she based Victor on him, and it's funny because yeah. In that relationship, Victor is what we would classify as the semi, but he's right. very artistic and sort of feminine. And, uh, you know, because we, I, I really always get hung up when people talk about gender in gay relationships because yeah. there's this sort of you cannot win because if it's two traditionally masculine presenting men, then they'll be told that they are, you know, conforming to this sort of heteronormative stereotype but if you have a masculine man and a feminine man then they are doing it too because then one's a man you can't really it's always a catch 22 and one thing i loved about victor and yuri is that they remind me of couples that i am friends with where there is no straight delineation it's they are just together like victor is very artistic and flamboyant but he's also apparently this the 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 dominant i don't want to use certain words but he's the 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 semi partner and then yuri is also somewhat feminine but he has masculine qualities too and i was like oh these are two realistic characters who act like gay men i would actually you know know and not like these very heightened sort of metaphorical allegories as human beings right um and i'm glad we're starting to see more of that instead of just there has to be the man and the 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 sort of pseudo feminine character and we're just going to do it with that even though i think those are valid too i mean i always hate when people dislike those because i'm like well there are people who are like that and they should be free to do as they want you know yeah a stereotype is not necessarily a bad thing it's when it's not done with nuance or the understanding that people come in variations right or when you get nothing but the stereotype or yeah nothing you know, but that was always my problem with it because certainly you know i mean i came up as a kid i was doing theater from a very young age so i was surrounded by theater queen and if you know any theater queens so oh know, i do they, i do yeah they're a breed all unto themselves and and you know that was essentially the example of the game that i had you know, I have a, and I, a very close friend who I basically said, God, if Victor Bueno was alive today, he would be your perfect stunt double. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Good for him. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I think it's, it, it, I, you know, I think the stereotype isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can come from a place of truth, really. But if it's all there is, then that's a problem. 
you know that's when we begin to decompress and and see the things that these stereotype represents you know the 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 types of humans that these stereotypes apply to we only see them as the stereotype and that's problematic and that's something that we in the gay community we have been battling for a very um so it's nice to see relationships like urian it's nice to see relationships like you know even masahiro and kosuke in hitorijima my hero turn this i keep stumbling it's very difficult to say i really want him to just call it my very own hero but i didn't get a vote um <laughs> but uh you know masahiro turns this around on Kosuke. there's it's they do it in it's one scene i mean essentially kosuke is definitely the dominant um uh, uh half of that relationship but there's this amazing masahiro corners uh corners kosuke complete with kabedan <laughs> and it's just uh, it filled me with glee and now to the second half of question <laughs> do it an hour later um as far as reaction to the shows that i've seen from new viewership um you know it's it's coming slowly uh it's very difficult to to break anime to a new viewing audience. so that's happening slowly i as much as i wished upon a shooting star love stage would be lightning strike that would galvanize the queer community and make them aware of this material. So on Pride.com, they had a little feature. It was, uh, they, they posted it on both their Twitter and um, And it was just a blurb about the, the release of the show and uh, a title like, um, you know, we need more anime like this. In our lives. So as I said, it was on Twitter and Facebook. And as you, I'm sure, know, you know, Facebook nowadays tends to be an old set. Um, uh, than the Twitter. So now, of course, we've moved on to Instagram, Snapchat, all the other social. But, uh, I have the Facebook and the Twitter. So uh, Twitter being a younger audience, what I found interesting was uh, that post on Twitter garnered a whole lot of very positive feedback. Uh, people who had seen the dub uh, responding to it, people who were interested in it. Post. On Facebook, again, being an older set, I there were a lot of people who saw, remembered the things they knew about old anime and thought about all the problematics they'd heard about Yaoi back in the And a lot of the dialogue seemed to be sort of bending that way on that post on Facebook. So, and largely I think it was people who hadn't seen it who were, <laughs> who were posting these things you know, maybe making sort of blanket judgments about anime. But these were, as far as I can tell, ostensibly queer people um, who seemed kind of unwilling, uh, based on things they'd heard about Yaoi is, to give Yaoi a chance. And some of them had probably seen it in Japanese and seen those events play out episode three assault and probably didn't watch any uh so it's interesting there there are a lot of there are a lot of there's a there are some walls to crack i think to really get the older to understand potential shows like the stage 
And when you talk about dubs, um, you know, there's so many people like, oh, I don't want to hear a dub or whatever. But I think for for queer people, um, you know, I, and I don't want to say that Japanese is somehow an unreliable language. I watch tons of movies in Japanese with subtitles all the time and tons of anime that way. But there's sure. something very special about hearing a character speak in your language. Like for me, I have seen the the subtitled version of Sailor Moon a thousand times with Kanzite and Zoysite being a gay couple in Japanese. And of course in the dub they did in the 90s, they turned Zoysite into a girl to make it a heterosexual relationship. Right, so right. when they did that dub and they did it in English, even though I have seen that couple a thousand times in another language, something about hearing it in English was just the most, it's like it yeah. feels more, it's like, there's something about hearing it in your own tongue that makes it special and more connectable in some ways. Like I don't yeah. want to make it seem like another language is that big of a barrier, but sometimes you need to hear it in your own voice in a well, way. And I think that's a very I special think, thing. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's not so that the language is the barrier, you know, it's the music. It's the music of a language. There are nuances in that language, uh, as well as straight up cultural references that are not going to land on you, land on a Japanese audience. Um, so the power of the dub, when we do it right, is that you're able to render these characters in English music. There's a lot of reason people, particularly if they only saw you know, if, if, if their only reference for dubs is the stuff we were doing in the 80s and 90s. I mean, dubbing anime was a new feature back then. And, and you know, we weren't as good at it back then. <laughs> we weren't as good as at, at dealing with the scripts. It was one of the reasons when I was a kid, I never really connected with Speed Racer. Uh, just because I could tell that script was a translation. And they that no effort really had been made to give any nuance to that language. I mean, as a, as an ADR script, writer, I, I have two areas of focus and I think, you know, far and wide in the industry, when we adapt these scripts, I, I think we tend to mistakenly focus on one of these two. Areas, and that is how do we best communicate the narrative as it is in the Japanese? Now, that's a worthy attempt. Someone else did write these stories. These these stories belong to someone else, and we we can't change them. You know, we betray the original. We if we change things too dramatically. But at the same time, the other concern which I weigh as absolute is what is the emotional response that this element of character or story was meant to to get from the Japanese viewer and how do i best approximate that a similar emotional response over here i'll give you an example for hitarishi Mema, uh and this wasn't so much in the writing casting but in hitarishi Mema, i hear a teacher Kosuke. in the japanese he's voiced i forget the seiyu's name very he's he he sounds like a much older actually and in Japanese, that's a celebrated romantic archetype, the low-voiced, sort of sultry, dark, you know, assertive man. And, and from the Japanese crowd, it's meant to elicit a sort of a swoon. Oh, he's the perfect man. And then add to that the problem, the fact that the is teaching in a high school with high school students. So 
over here, when I cast that show, I didn't, I wanted to make sure that I did not give Kosuke that super low, you know, sultry voice. Because in and of itself, it works perfectly fine. But when I was surrounding him with high school students, one of whom he was in love with, wanted to make sure that that character, who's only, I think, 20, sounded as close to those boys in age as he actually was. So to use that low voice, you know, to, 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 to cast that character with really low resonant baritone would have been, you know, the Japanese would have celebrated that as a, as a romantic ideal. But over here, it was separated Kosuke from those boys even more. And it would have made that bridge much more difficult to cross. Getting the audience to accept the relationship between Kosuke and Asahiro. So I cast David Matrenga, who's got a beautifully sultry voice, but it's closer. You know, it's, it's, it's more, it's, it's more Barry Tenor than baritone basso. So Kosuke sounds a little closer to those boys than he did in the Japanese. And that's important because to have him voiced by someone like me for it would have made you would have would have made the audience separate Kosuke from those boys in ways that the Japanese audience would it's exactly worse of the way that they would think about. It. Um, so there are tricks you have to hold when you're adapting to English, not just in the choice but in the but in the approach to the overall narrative have to be sensitive or at least i feel very strong that i have to be sensitive to the emotional response that 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 bit of storytelling is meant to elicit its original listeners and to approximate the english listener who has very different needs speaks a very different language responds very differently to certain rhythms and cadences and we've gotten better about it in dub. So there's, you know, there's a, there, there's a lot of old hate dubs that's worthwhile because some of those old dubs are real choppy. But uh, uh, to be able to take these stories and adapt them into English has been immensely rewarding for me, particularly as, uh, as was my, you know, part of my contention was that when we adapt these stories, we have to adapt with a queer voice. These, they are telling uniquely queer stories and someone needs to understand what those are if we're going to adapt a script into English. So I wanted to take responsibility for that myself so that there's a uniquely queer perspective behind these adaptations. And that's something that our adaptations have that the original versions don't. Um, so there's merit to the adaptation if it's accomplished well, which I hope we did. And I know that other anime has accomplished it very, very well. So yeah, the old, uh, the old sub versus dub argument, I think that's based on, I think that's based on really old information.
I tried to. I once tried to explain subs versus dubs by injecting Derrida into the conversation, and they just the the looks I got were not worth the attempt to entrance. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the the breakdown of language as we go to the famous French philosopher. So, um, David, we have so, trying to sometimes trying to teach otaku is 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 one of those the blind in the blind moments indeed um, in the land of the blind a one-eyed man is king <laughs> david we have had you for over two hours and when we contacted you i was like this will take an hour and a half talks. no it's um, been great it, it, it is it has been a treat having you um it is nice to see someone who is doing this kind of community um and trying to get these narratives out and make them accessible to a wide variety of audiences be it people who are already fans or people who uh this might be something that helps them um so we you were the perfect guest we could have had for our pride month podcast because otherwise it would have been me talking to myself and we that. <laughs> oh. so if people want to find you and support your work where can they do that uh, I'm out there on the, uh, as mentioned, I'm on the Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, it's just me, David Wald on Facebook and, uh, Twitter. I think it's, uh, David Wald VA, David Wald underscore VA. Uh, I'm on Instagram under the same handle. Uh, so you can find me there or I will be talking. These <laughs> um, love stage, uh, and he to resume my hero and bloom into you are available to stream on high dive you've just finished directing the uh, cutie honey dub too, yes so cutie honey we're, is coming we're very excited about that i know that Look at least i am and then yes there'll be another uh there'll be another weird title i can't tell you anything about that yet but uh we got another one cooked so we do have a lot from you to look forward to coming out and i'm sure uh the successes you've had with these shows so far, you're probably going to have more, and I'm looking forward to that. I, I'm From hoping... your mouth to God's ears, Sully. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to go in that direction, but we'll see. Um, so thank you so much, David, for being on the podcast with us. And if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at Calvacun. That is, I have to spell it because I chose a stupid name, at C-A-L-V-A underscore K-U-N. Uh, Austin has been sitting in on this, uh, being our tech guy. So I'll, you know, promote him just because he's been so nice to us. He is at BebopShot on Twitter, and you can also find us at thirdimpactanime.com. And our Twitter for that is ti underscore anime on Twitter. So David, again from all of us here at Third Impact, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and I hope everyone has a happy Pride Month or what's left of it by the time this comes out. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Sully, and thank you, Austin, the silent but formidable force. It's been a joy, and uh, thank you for your interest in this stuff, and thank you for, for doing a special Pride podcast. Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month to all. Fly, fly your rainbow fleek, freak flag high. That's really hard to say. Fly your rainbow freak flag high. Please tell me not.